and amen. Good morning, faith family at the landing, and welcome to you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I love you and thank you for the power that you have given in your word, and I thank you for the sweetness we experience when you, through your servants, declare it over us. Thank you, Almighty God and Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, for the gospel that we live and move and have our being within. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming in the power of your glory and divinity and deity to teach us now from Revelation 12. Thank you for drawing near to my daughter-in-law, Maddie, and helping her illness, her virus and pneumonia come under control and her heartbeat come down. Thank you for drawing near to my son, her husband, to care for her. Thank you for bringing to Rick and Marilyn, as Larry just prayed over in the Ukraine, under the invasion of Putin, a comfort and a protection while they endure bombings and raids and sirens and power outages. Draw near, Lord, I pray, to those around the world enduring persecution in a way we can't even begin to imagine. And help us to cherish and give thanks for the kind of mercy and grace you show us new every morning. And equip us for the day when it will be our turn. Bless us, Lord, now with great blessings from the richness of your word that Larry has just read. The overflowing richness, far more here than we can possibly receive. Soften our hearts and equip us to receive now the wonder, the glory, the power, the goodness, the gospel from Revelation 12. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2007, a popular Christian missionary in a faraway country, a Central Asian country I won't even name, he was a pastor and song leader, had a wife and three children, was leading a church and really a movement of Christians in this Central Asian nation I won't name. He was kidnapped with two other Christian leaders from his church and they were tortured and killed. The five Muslim young men who were hired to do the kidnapping and murder, were ultimately identified and brought on trial. The trial just so happened to last about six years. New judges, new evidence, switches and baits all over the place. And finally they were imprisoned, but then they were released just about a year later in 2014. They were, all five were imprisoned to life without parole. They were released about a year later. The organization that still seeks to disrupt and create disunity in this faraway Central Asian country of which you would know is still at work and it still sees the kidnapping and killing of missionaries under the foment and hatred of some militant Muslims in this nation as a very useful tool for trying to take over power from the government. You and I have a good friend, a dear friend and his wife and their kids, who Larry just prayed about, who's leaving his position in one job to go to take another job precisely so that he can go back to this country. Would you please pray for him? The devil is at work in this country, but the devil is at work here. Our job is not necessarily to come face to face with the devil when we see him at work. You'll see that in a moment. But our job is to, whenever we sense and are aware of demonic attack in our lives or our families or in our, in our extended families, our church community or our, our community that we live in, our city, our state, or even our government, 
Whenever we sense the demonic attack on the earth that the Lord Jesus says is real and is present, and this passage proves, we should make a laser line to the gospel. That's what we should do. Rather than simply falling prey to to getting down on the level of the devil and dealing with him directly, we should submit ourselves to God, James 4, 7, and the devil will flee from us. My aim in this message is that you might look with me to Revelation 12, this, this second two paragraphs Larry just read, and see here a call to not only recognize, maybe like you've never recognized before, the gospel in these verses, but to see that when the devil rises up, as he surely does, that instead of directly addressing him, that would be a kind of surrender to him and a certain victory on his part, we should make a laser line to the gospel, and that laser line to the gospel will rout the enemy, save our souls and the souls of those lost around us, and give glory to God. You might remember from verses 1 through 6, last Sunday as we were looking at Revelation 12, there is a pair of signs, two signs, one the woman, one the dragon. The woman is clothed in the sun, Her feet rest on the moon. She's about to give birth. So the moon is like her birthing stool. She gives birth to a son, the son of man, who's born to rule with a rod of iron. That's Christ. The woman I take to be the community of believers in the day of Jesus' birth. All the Old Testament believers and those Jewish and Gentile believers in that day. I also take it to be a reference to all believers since then, including us, because later on in the passage, verse 17, it says, Her offspring are all those who obey the word of God and keep the testimony of Jesus. The baby she gives birth to is Christ and this Dragon, this seven-headed, ten-horned dragon, red with rage and eager to devour newborns, is Satan himself. Never forget it. Satan always hates babies. We saw this hate-filled dragon sweep a third of the stars from the sky, which I take to be angelic hosts that he then has as representatives of human believers like we saw in chapter 1. And those human believers are trampled. I take this as an angry, revengeful act of Satan himself sweeping a third of the stars from the sky. Then we saw how the woman was rescued, as it were, into the wilderness by God and nourished and protected by God in the wilderness. And the devil was full of hate that God did that, and so he pursued the woman into the wilderness. This very demon, this devil, seven-headed, ten-horned, I've got all the power in the world, I've got all the authority in the world, but in fact I've been a liar from the beginning, so none of that is true. He is so maniacal, so suicidal, so evil and self-destroying while he destroys others that he was the one who sought to have Judas, you remember, betray Jesus so that Jesus would go to the cross. And in Jesus going to the cross, we will see Jesus defeated with a mortal wound, the devil. So he committed suicide at the cross. Praise the Lord. Notice what happens in the very first verse that Larry read in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So this is what's happening in heaven while verses 1 through 6 happened on the earth. During the first incarnation of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the the events of Christ, while that was happening on the earth, this is what's happening in the heavenly realms overhead. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Good for them. And he, the devil, was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The devil and his angels get kicked out of heaven. It's my understanding that the devil actually fell from his place of favor in heaven as an angel worshiping God way back at creation in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Adam and Eve. And then he was tempting and deceiving nations all the way through the Old Testament. But at the time of Christ, right when these things have, are happening, he's actually no longer even welcome or allowed to be in heaven. What was he doing trying to climb back into heaven? He was constantly accusing believers. Did you see David? Did you see Moses? Did you see Ruth? Did you see Rahab? God, did you see Job? Did you see Joshua? Did you see all these people? They they claim to be yours and you claim to be their God, but do you realize how very sinful and ugly and shameful they really are? Are you really a good God? Is it really working, God? Is your plan to bring a people for yourself actually working? They don't even trust you or believe you. Look at how many times they doubt you and fail you. Even the best of them constantly sins against you. They only follow you when you give them what they want. They don't really love you. Lie after lie, that's what the devil was doing all the way through his his clamoring back up into heaven throughout the Old Testament history. That's my understanding. Jesus, you remember, said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, Satan has sought to sift you, but I have prayed for you that your soul might be saved. And when you have turned, restore your brothers. Satan is fighting Michael here. Michael is an archangel. Michael has angels with him. Michael is an angel. One one interpreter calls him the field marshal of Christ. He's, He's fighting against the devil. Notice God is not fighting against the devil. Neither is Christ fighting against the devil. They're watching and observing, but they've scripted and written the whole story, so it'll be a little bit like J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings fighting one of the orcs. It doesn't really make any sense. He's kind of ordering what the orc does and says with his pen. God's not going to fight the devil. Don't ever think the devil is equal with God. That's a heresy that's lurking about. You hear it all over the place. It's false. Don't ever think the devil is even as as strong as any in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, they are all ruling over all things. They have leashed the devil like a dog on a leash. And they have unleashed all of nature on the earth to actually limit the work of the devil. The devil loses and he's no longer permitted to go into heaven to make accusation against anyone day and night, as the Scripture says. He's cast down to the earth and that makes him even redder with with anger. Now that Christ has come, now that Christ was born and lived a righteous life, and he resisted, as you remember, in Matthew 4, all the devil's wilderness temptations, 
as the true Israel fulfilling what the ancient Israel failed at, dying for the sins of the world as our victorious Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, rising again to conquer the last enemy death and arrives in heaven. He's coronated there at the Father's right hand as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Now the devil has been evicted out of heaven for good and Christ's death and resurrection has empowered Michael to fight against the devil and win. The devil is cast down to earth. Good for us. He's on the earth. But think with me about that for a moment. Revelation 12 says the devil, prince of the power of the air, he's fallen through the sky. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven in Luke 10. I take that as a a description almost prophetically of what Jesus is saying, what's happening at my arrival. When I come and when I live and die and rise again, Satan is falling from heaven like lightning. That's why he's called prince of the power of the air. He doesn't get to go into heaven anymore. That's what of the air means. He no longer gets to accuse. All he does in his rage and anger is chase after the church. You're being pursued by the enemy. But he's a limited, created being. Yes, he has an authority over other demons. He's the prince of the power of the air. But he's a limited being. The devil is not omniscient like God is omniscient. The devil is not omnipotent like God is omnipotent. And the devil is not omnipresent like God is omnipresent. I heard one time, maybe you did too, someone saying that they sat on an airliner and they were flying on a trip somewhere and sat next to someone and they began to witness to them and the person said, oh, so you're a Christian. Well, I'm a Satanist and I'm going to start to pray to Satan against you. And I heard one pastor say, I'm a pastor of a church and I sat next to a Satanist and they said, I'm going to pray to Satan that your church would be destroyed and that your ministry would be destroyed. And this pastor at first felt very fearful and uncertain what to say, but then he later thought, wait a minute. (laughs) The devil is just a small angel. Who are you talking to? (laughs) He probably can't hear you. He's bugging somebody else somewhere else. Don't be the fool in talking to the devil. He can't hear you. He's way too small for that. Maybe it's important that you and me learn not to have too high or inflated or vast a view of the enemy. In fact, I hear it so commonly. In fact, it was a confusion in my mind years and years ago that somehow God and the devil were battling and and that it was up to me to make wise decisions of faith in order to give one the edge in my life. No, no, how wicked a teaching that is. Satan is on a leash. He's a lackey, a lapdog. He does what his master commands. The woman, the other sign in heaven, is the church of God, protected, beloved. You remember what happens in the wilderness? The wilderness here in Revelation 12 for the woman is the, is the people of God. That's where God takes his church away into the wilderness. That's where Hosea took Gomer into the wilderness, it says in Hosea 2, and he spoke sweet words to her. Hosea 2 says, that's what God does with Israel. Come and be near me. Let me show you my love and provide for you. Let me care for you. 
Let me heal you. Let me minister to you where you are hurting. I'll provide manna and quail and water and even bitter water I will make sweet. I'll give you rest. And more than that, I'll give you identity and blessing as my people. As you read through verses 7 through 9, notice how the war unfolds. Verse 8, that he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He, has, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Jesus predicted this would happen. Do you remember Jesus talking in the Garden of Eden? So Satan's first fall from a place of virtue and grace to a place of evil and hatred and pride against God. He fell in the Garden of Eden, now in the Garden of Gethsemane. Millennia later, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Same verb as Satan being cast out of heaven here. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12, 31. So this is the picture of what Jesus does on earth to empower Michael to fight against the devil in heaven and cast him down. That's the picture you must have in your mind. So when the 72 were sent out by Jesus, they came back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which I take Jesus to be here proclaiming this future, as I mentioned. And then he goes on to say, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and power over all the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see what Jesus means? He, he means the devil used to have a place in heaven. He's been cast down by my work on the cross and by fighting of God's archangel Michael against him, casting him down. But don't rejoice in whatever temporary authority the devil had. It's been taken from him. He has been relegated, condemned to the earth. And you know as well as I that Revelation tells us he will be cast even further down into the abyss. And later, at the very end, he will be cast into the lake of fire. Down, down, down for the devil. Just like Saul in 1 Samuel. Down, down, down. Saul's life goes from one level to another. That's exactly what's happening to the devil. High place of heaven then into the air to condemn and to accuse. And then when Christ is on the cross, all the way down to the earth, and ultimately the abyss and the lake of fire. But Jesus says to his disciples, rejoice in this, that your names are written in in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that the authority I'm giving you, the power over serpents and scorpions, the power over the enemy, that I'm giving to you, not temporarily, but forever, because what's written in heaven is never going to be erased. Praise his name. I wonder if you live your life as fully aware of two things. One, there is a real devil, and he's pursuing to destroy the church, including this one. He's pursuing Kath and Ruthie and me. He's pursuing the elders and their families. He's pursuing every one of you. He wants to destroy this church and any other church that opens its Bible and reads it. He says, those are the ones I'm going to destroy. They're the target of my hatred. I wonder if you realize that. And second, 
that you have power and authority given by Christ's death and resurrection to you by the indwelling Holy Spirit to serve the Lord, proclaim the gospel, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the devil will flee from you. You do that in the authority that can't be taken from you. As I said earlier, I think it's a capitulation to the enemy's strategy if we stop thinking about Christ and we stop thinking about the gospel and we stop thinking about the glory of God and we turn our attentions to the devil and start addressing him directly. Now, sometimes there are demons that manifest themselves and I've read stories and I've been in encounters when actual demons seem to be present. That might be a time momentarily to direct our words to him in Jesus' name. But how rare is that? Far more common for the Christian life is to watch what the Bible does. It constantly says, put the gospel in front of you, put the gospel in front of you, make a laser beam to it, and Satan will flee from that, for God is being exalted. Several of you had pointed out thoughtful questions that came to my mind last Sunday. I even had a paragraph in my sermon I didn't say, and I want to say it now briefly. I talked about Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, where it's so plain where Paul says our struggle or our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So one question you might ask if that's the case then is, one, does that mean our sin, my sin, the sin of other people is not our struggle? No, my sin is still a struggle, and so is all the sins of other people. So we still have to deal with ourselves and the sins of others. But another question is, if our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, should we be always focusing on principalities and powers? My answer is no. Why? Well, one reason, beyond what I've already given, is that this word inside Ephesians 6, 12 is a rare word. It shouldn't actually be translated struggle or wrestle. It sounds like we're directly focusing on spiritual realities when we struggle and wrestle with them. That's not what the original says. It's the, it's the Greek word pale. It only shows up once in the New Testament, and it basically means contest. I'm in a contest with them. It's more the picture of a triathlon. I'm running, and the enemy is running to chase me. God, keep me persevering and running with your power to the prize, which is Christ, not me got, having my foot on the neck of the devil. No ministry, no church, no Christian should make their life consumed to think about what the devil is always doing. That's a misread of the whole of Scripture. The whole of Scripture says what Paul said to the Corinthians, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Pray that my preaching and praying, and Pastor Andrew's teaching and preaching and praying, and the elders' teaching and preaching and praying, and the deacon's ministry here. Pray that our ministry would be riveted on Christ and Him crucified, that we'd make a beeline to the gospel even when we spot the devil at work. Even when we can tell behind someone's words that they're believing lies or condemnation or shame or error, Help us not to go down to that level. Pray that we would be guarded from degenerating down to the devil's level where he wants us to squabble with him. You can see in these two signs, 
the devil and the woman, a picture of the gospel that I had said earlier you may have never seen before. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. You can see how this is talking about the resurrection and coronation of Christ. Why? Ground for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Do you see why all of heaven is rejoicing? Do you see why those on earth, even though the devil's here with us, should also rejoice? Do you see why the devil is so very angry and why he's pursuing the church? He's pursuing us because he can't accuse us anymore. And they, it says, accuser of our brothers who's been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. You know what the woman said who had lost her husband to, and two other leaders from the church in this faraway Central Asian country? She was asked by a radio station to, to give an interview within 12 or so hours of discovering that her husband had been brutally killed and that two of her friends along with him had been brutally killed and her children were now fatherless and she was now a widow. And she said no to the media in this testimony I heard from her on the Voice of the Martyrs website just recently. But her pastor, another pastor friend, came to her and said, haven't we been praying for years and years as Christians for an opportunity to speak the gospel broadly in a large format? If you feel the strength of God, I'm going to pray for you that you would be able to give this interview, even though it's only 12 hours since your husband's death. She said, a a strength came over me, and all of a sudden I felt like Moses, that my mouth could open and speak. And she said, I would gladly give... Uh, an interview, and to the interviewer, she said, it's, it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that I'm willing to forgive the five who were caught who confessed to murdering my husband. Because Christ, through his blood, has forgiven me so much. And the interviewer said, I don't quite understand. Could you say that more clearly? <laughs> and so she said the whole thing again. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Do you see what happened at the cross? Not only did all of those things that are in your heart and mine and in my heart that make us feel so unworthy of his love and of his grace and of his heaven and of his presence, Not only were all those cleansed from us, wiped away, and the debt of them was paid, and the wrath of God against our sin was completely absorbed by Christ, but also the very sins that we feel so ashamed about, Christ took, and as it were, he nailed them to the cross. It's like all these long streams of rolled up parchment paper in scrolls were streaming down from the nails that held him on the cross. Streaming rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls of Brent Nelson's sin were hung on those nails, hanging down to the ground and running down Golgotha. All of it was nailed to the cross while Christ hung there. And you, Colossians and believers at the landing who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, God set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Christ. When the devil saw what was happening at the cross, he grew furious because the only thing the devil has to to grasp any power over you is unforgiven sin. Nothing in your past, nothing that's been done to you, nothing about who you are, nothing that feels like so many propensities in you, nothing whatsoever about your personality, your DNA, nothing about your, your sex or your ethnicity, nothing about your family, nothing at all does the devil have the ability to actually grasp and harm you with except unforgiven sin. It's only unforgiven sin that keeps you out of God's favor and out of his heaven. It's only unforgiven sin that the devil could accuse us and God. But when that sin was covered through Jesus' blood on the cross, the devil had nothing more to accuse you with. His weapon against you is broken into pieces. And he no longer has any power over you. So even if the devil runs up and tries to catch you, he has no power to condemn you as you walk in close fellowship with the Lord. This is what gives us boldness to continue to share our testimony. This is what allowed that widow to continue to share her testimony even 12 hours after her husband was just brutally killed for being a Christian. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. That's what it means. That's why I say it's making a beeline to the gospel. If you feel tempted by the devil, every second you feel tempted by the devil, and I'm talking to myself here, every second you feel tempted by the devil, don't address the devil. Make a beeline to the gospel. Make a laser line to the gospel. Go straight to the fact that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And the devil doesn't have any power to tempt you, condemn you, confuse you, or accuse you. So she was bold in her testimony. By the word of their testimony, churches speak boldly. They speak freely. Christians are unafraid. I read an account on another website about the persecuted church recently where a pastor was preaching and an individual who actually was a shaman, brought a sword into the ceremony or into the worship service and said, I want you, pastor, to come out and, and come out from behind your pulpit and from behind your church building and to come out and to speak the gospel out in the street. And if you do, I will take this sword and I will draw your blood in the street. So the pastor got down from his pulpit. He walked outside the church building and the entire church congregation followed And he stood out in the street and he began to to continue preaching his sermon out in the street. And the shaman with his sword came up to him and said, he laid the sword on the man's chest and he said, I'm going to draw your blood in the street. And the man said, here, let me open my shirt. Go ahead and do it. But every drop of blood that you take from me in the name of Jesus Christ will raise up a thousand more preachers like me. And the shaman walked away. By the word of their testimony, they love not their lives, even unto death. If you believe with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that your sins are forgiven, praise the Lord, and that you have the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, you will be bold in your testimony. You're not going to run away. You're not going to get into some holy fortress or or hide in a holy huddle. You are going to speak boldly the word of God, even if it costs you your life 
or the life of those near to you. We will defy the devil. We will call his bluff. We will not be stingy with the gospel. We'll freely give it away. We will not regard the unbelievers who are walking in sin and darkness as unworthy of the gospel we thought ourselves worthy of. Jump down to verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's what the devil is doing against us right now. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Don't fear the day when, you're t- when you will be threatened to give testimony to Jesus. Just know that the power of God, like with this widow, will come over you and you will be able to speak the word of faith in Jesus Christ when you must. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. The accuser is no longer there, accusing the saints day and night. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. We know from our study in Revelation that the time is short is the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And that scene is a very short time. It's called 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. It's the time of ministry for the church. And Christ will then arrive and bring to fulfillment and conclusion all he has promised. Look what happens to the woman, verse 13. When the dragon saw that He had been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Who gave her those? God did. God gave her two wings to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. This is is the heaven vantage point perspective of exactly what happened in verses 1 through 6. This is the woman rescued by God into the wilderness for nourishing for protection. But here we're told she's been given two wings, eagle's wings by God. What does that mean? What are we supposed to see in that? Here's what I understand that to mean. This is a beautiful picture of the way God rescued the people of Israel out of the exodus and slavery in Egypt. It says there, you might remember Exodus 19, you yourselves, God talking to the Israelites, have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you, Israel, on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is God saying to the church, you're like my Israel, my true Israel. And just like I rescued the original Israel on eagle's wings out of slavery and danger from Pharaoh, I'm rescuing you. You are not going to be harmed by the devil. I'm only permitting him to pursue you in order to bring you to the full sanctified beauty that I designed for you. Exodus 19 goes on to explain more about these wings. Maybe if you're thinking with me, you're thinking, okay, I'll mount up with wings like eagles, Isaiah 40. And God's the one who's got the wings, and those wings are covering the Ark of the Covenant. They're his covenant love. It's like, it's like God marries whoever he puts under those wings. The wings are, are what a husband puts over his wife and says, you're mine, and I'm going to protect you and love you with a special covenant love. Oh, yes, I love everybody, but I love you as my wife. God has those wings, and here he gives them to Israel or to the people of Israel, the true Israel, the church. He gives them to us, and he says, I'm going to rescue you on eagle's wings that I give to you. 
What does that mean? We've already had our sins forgiven. Now the devil can't accuse us anymore. But what do these wings mean? Verse 5 of Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Obedience, treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, when I give you these wings, I'm giving you my nature, my righteousness. My covenant keeping is going to transform you, church, into someone who's all the more beautiful and worthy of the sun with which you are clothed and the moon on which your feet rest. God protects his church by causing her to be more and more and more beautiful all the time. I could give you statistics about how persecution in the last 10 years is higher than all the previous 1900 years before that. I could also tell you that if you include places like China and elsewhere, there's more missionary winning of the lost, missionary zeal, and the gospel going forward in the last 10 years than there is in all the 1900 years before that. These statistics I first heard from D.A. Carson and then spent time this week looking them up, and in fact, they proved to be as true now as when he said them. God is beautifying his church. Satan has a mortal wound. He was given this mortal wound at the cross. He's got a sickness in him that's going to kill him. He's got a cancer called hatred in him, and it's going to result in his final destruction into the abyss and finally the lake of fire. But we're to outrun him, not with our feet, but with the wings of his righteousness that he gives to us. Do you remember what John Bunyan said in that little limerick? I think I have it here. I might even have it memorized. In a little limerick, the writer of the Pilgrim's Progress wrote this beautiful little phrase, Run, John, run. The law commands, but neither gives me help nor hands, feet nor hands. And then the last part, I'm forgetting it, says, the gospel... He says, he says then, then the law has no power to help me run. It has no power to help me achieve what God commands. But then the gospel commands me to do the very same righteousness, but it gives me wings. It's a beautiful little phrase that John Bunyan was trying to capture this picture here that I'm looking at in Revelation 12, this idea that we've been given wings, the righteousness of God to carry out the beauty of the power of the gospel. Here it is, run, John, run. The law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. This beautiful picture is of the gospel. This is why I started by saying, let there be a laser beam of your attention away from the enemy, knowing he's there, knowing he's attacking, knowing he's present. I know he's present in this room right now. I know he's attacking me. I know he's attacking you. I know he's going to attack us when we eat together. I know he's going to attack when we leave. He's going to be attacking me this afternoon and you too. Tonight and tomorrow and the days and the weeks and years and decades ahead. I know the enemy will attack. The Bible says he will. He's on the earth to do so. Cast here by God. You almost want to say, okay, Michael, did you know what you were doing? We need the power of God. Well, of course, the second half of this passage is 
we've been given the very wings of God himself to fly to his wilderness for rest, for food, for refreshment, and for welcome into his arms. Verse 11, you may or may not know, is the very center of the book of Revelation. It's probably one of the most important verses for John to write for his early churches, the seven that he's writing to and us who are represented by those seven. And they have conquered him. We have conquering authority over the devil, church at the landing. By the blood of the Lamb, you can't accuse me anymore, devil, because I've been forgiven by Christ. And by the word of our testimony, we will speak the word of Christ. We will speak the word of Jesus and not shrink back, for he has captured our affections and worked our salvation. For they loved not their lives even unto death. You see the two words by? By the word of their testimony? By the blood of the Lamb? Another careful author pointed me to the fact that in Greek, these are not a means. These are not instruments by which we do something. These are not maps by which we move from one place to another. This is not a tool that he's talking about. No, no. It's the Greek word dia, and it means through or on account of. And they conquered him, the devil, on account of the blood of the Lamb and on account of the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Do you see how much richer it is to think about it in the most accurate terms? The devil has designed to come against us as a church and to come against you as an individual, and yet your laser-like focus on the gospel, both the sin wiped away and the righteousness of God granted to us by faith, enables us to obey verse 11. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, loving not our lives even unto death, to conquer the devil and honor God. Let's pray. I love you, Lord, and I love Revelation 12. I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm overwhelmed by the picturing of the gospel in it. I'm overwhelmed by the details of every word in the verses. I'm overwhelmed by the imagery and the metaphors that point me to Christ and to the rest of the Bible and to the glory of the gospel. I pray that you would help every person in the hearing of my voice to relish and cherish knowing that their sins are forgiven and that they have, in fact, sprouted wings. I pray, Father, that you would bless them and keep them. I pray that you would empower them to fix their eyes on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ when they feel most attacked by the enemy, and even when they do not. Praise your name. I pray that we would be a church not ignorant of Satan's designs, but well aware of his efforts against us. I pray that marriages would be strengthened by a knowledge of how the enemy is trying to attack and divide. I pray for families that they would be blessed with a, a precious knowledge of how their children are coming under the attack of the enemy and how siblings can care for each other who know that their brother or sister is under attack of the enemy. It's all found in fixing our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. Fixing our eyes on you as Paul did for the Corinthians and as your word does for us constantly. Submitting to God, therefore, and Satan will flee from us. Lord, I thank you for the insights that you have afforded and granted to us as we've pondered these things. There are many more yet to come. 
Teach us from Revelation 12 and teach us as we watch it unfold in the rest of the book of Revelation and protect this body, I pray, with the blood of Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus, and a faith in us making us willing to love not our lives even unto death. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray all these things. Amen. Stand with